Hello, and welcome to a special presentation of Harper Audio Presents, recorded at the American Booksellers Association's Winter Institute in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Winter Institute is a gathering of independent booksellers, publishers, and authors. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is... My name is Marina Benjamin, and my book is called The Middle Pause on Life After Youth. The publisher is Catapult, and the pub date is the 14th of March, 2017. Marina Benjamin is the author of two previous memoirs, Rocket Dreams, shortlisted for the Eugene Emmy Award, and Last Days in Babylon, longlisted for the Wingate Prize. She lives in London and is currently a senior editor at the digital magazine Aeon. Were I to tell my sister about the middle pause, what would you want me to tell her? I would want you to say, here's a book that completely redefines the debate around aging for women. It kind of eschews all the populist literature that does cheerleading from the sidelines and says, 50 is the new 40, you know, you can still be young and fabulous. Just ignore aging and... um, We'll just all uh, party on until we drop. <laughs> yeah, because you've said that you you have a, a knee-jerk distaste for the the notion that age is all in the mind, is it, that somehow we can outthink it. Um, yeah, I, I, and the book, I've, what I've done in the book is I've every uh, section is labeled after a body part because for me, I wanted to reground the idea of aging as an embodied experience mm. and put the body very much back in the frame um, because I think it's through the body that we experience a sense of ourselves. So that was one very strong strand, if you like, through the book. Um, but I also wanted to kind of... Um, deepen our our understanding of what it meant to be at a pivotal moment in the middle of our lives and what that meant in developmental terms. So how do you grow? You know, there's, it's all very well saying, oh, well, when you get older, you get wiser. How, how does this happen? Right. So I was wanting to engage with developmental psychology and I wanted to engage with philosophy and literature. So it's a book that kind of draws deeply from, you know, other wells of knowledge Um, And it's a book that also looks at literature because in the end I found that more inspiring than um, dry kind of books about aging in in terms of illuminating or hitting on exactly the psychological processes that were were going on that had affected us. Right, so you draw inspiration from literature, science, philosophy, and then, you know, your experience and, and others' experiences. But it's really, it draws from all of those yeah. sources. I mean, I, it does draw from all those sources, but the, the thread that holds it all together is memoir. And so, yes, it's my experience. It's not a, an, a prescriptive book. It's a narrative book. Yeah. I kind of, the idea was I thought I would bear my soul and be as open and honest and um, um, brave, I in a way, as possible about confronting the difficulties, I suppose, that you experience in midlife. And they include things like, you know, you know, your, your, your bodily issues as you get older, that you just don't have the stamina that you used to have, or that, um, you know, menopause and how horrendous that can be. Um, I wanted to confront bereavement. I wanted to confront this idea of kind of separating from your youthful self in your mind 
and not being uh, terrified of entertaining notions of regret because we can learn from those feelings and um, but we need to put them we need to experience them in order to to put right. them to one side. Yeah, we need to certainly, if nothing else, acknowledge them. Yeah, exactly. To acknowledge them and learn from them and understand what those yeah. feelings tell us about ourselves. And um, and what opportunity, I mean, they do provide a certain amount of opportunity, but only after exactly. a certain amount of examination. Exactly. If you try to rush right past, then I, I, I do exactly. think you find yourself in a strangely false uh, just a, a false situation. Well, then you become your own cheerleader without actually understanding the processes that are going on deep within you about the way in and which And what I see also aging. with friends, because I'm a similar age, is um, then you become super, you become very, very reactionary. You, you're then just sort of, you're in a very defensive and reactionary position rather than having sat, worked through it and said, oh, okay, um, I'm, at, I'm at a new starting line because that's very much how I feel. I feel like, I really do feel like a, I, I reached one finish line and now the next race is really about to start. I, it's a very different race and I don't know what kind of training and preparation I'm supposed to do, but if I don't figure that out, then I'm in the middle of the race and I don't know what the hell is going on. Exactly. <laughs> that's what, that's what I feel. Exactly. Well, I mean, Eric Erickson put it very nicely when he said the midlife crisis, and he didn't just see life as being one crisis. He had yeah. eight developmental stages, and each stage ends with a crisis. If you don't kind of reckon with that crisis and emerge and deal with it and emerge at the other side and with growth, um, then you get into some kind of arrested development. Yeah. The midlife crisis, the arrested development, it, 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 the quality that he ascribes to that arrest is narcissism. You, you basically, you are trapped in that um, hall of mirrors of late youth where all you want to do is have achievement and glory and have that reflected back at you. And what he says about midlife is you need to embrace generativity. That's the, the place that you have to transition to. And he defines generativity as this whole idea of giving back to society. Yeah. You know, now is the time where you cast aside the ego and you start giving back and you get a sense of yourself through your agency with others. So he talks about, there are all kinds of giving back, you know, there's productivity, whatever that happens, your line of work happens to be. There's mentoring, there's raising children, there's charity work, there's volunteering. It's just plugging back in to society. Uh, from the position of kind of a maturity. Um, and with Ericsson's model, every um, crisis that you resolve wins you a virtue, and the virtue of midlife is care. So I think there are some very poetic ways into this idea of aging, but you, you're right. You have to really understand where you are in the moment in order to move forwards, or you move forwards with a kind of... Um, one of those barricades in front of you, like with a with a kind of, um, I'm thinking of those police shields yeah. where you're actually trying to hold the future back as you move forward. Right, right, right. And that seems to me a very negative way to age. Right. So your book can be seen as sort of that, uh, just, I, I understand it, it, it is your personal experience, but it can provide sort of a, a guide, a companion to the exercise of examination that one hopefully is taking. I, I know I, for me, I had to do a lot of um, writing, just journaling, 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 more so than, you know, I remember, remember in our 20s, we kept those journals and we were so into writing everything down and then I stopped for a long time. But I went back to it 
for precisely that reason. And and the middle pause feels like a, a, a nice companion to that to that effort. Yes, I mean, I, I did intend it to be that. I wanted it to be, although it is personal, I also wanted it to have a roadmap quality. And I use that word very specifically in that it, it, this is not a self-help book. This is a, a work of literature. This is a work that, um, you know, I've, I've, I've tried. It, I, you know, it's written very economically. It's written very with a great deal of feeling. Um, it, it, I tried to make it as far from self-help as possible. However... I'd be lying if I said that it didn't help me, that writing it out did help me. There is a roadmap quality to it, but it's not prescriptive. It's yeah, a narrative. Exactly. How have you changed having written the book and now having it accepted for publication, having been published in the UK? You know, I'm journaling. You're, you're writing this down and now you're sharing it. I mean, has that changed the, the process and the result? What's, what I've particularly liked is that um, I've spoken at a lot of book groups and events where there have been a lot of women wrestling with these issues, everybody from their kind of early 40s to their late 60s. So, um, and I've had just, I've heard wonderful stories. I've been able to kind of talk um, with women to share the experiences of, of being in midlife. And it's been very affirming, actually, Um and I think that women are really very keenly aware of the societal pressures to sort of remain young. Um, and some of those societal pressures don't show themselves very readily because they're generational. Um, so, for example, while our parents' generation, 40 and 50, they were landmark decades where you changed the way you, you behaved. We don't do that anymore. You know, we share a culture with the young. We wear pretty much the same clothing. We share... Um, we go to the same movies, we go to the same restaurants, um, and it's very easy to kid yourself that nothing much is going to change as you age. So it's, in that sense, it's quite easy to get uh, deluded um, or, and to feel ambushed by, by the onset of age, which is very much what happened to me. I felt it would just ambushed and laid bare by it. I'm always surprised, you know. I, I, I'm I'm generally healthy, but if I if I speak to a doctor and I say, "Oh yeah, you know this this thing is happening or that thing is happening," and they just sort of look at me like, and there's always this pause. And I'm like, "Yeah, that's because you're getting older." And they're just sort of like, "Yeah," yes. you know. And but it's the same kind of thing where I thought, "Oh, I, I, nobody really talks about the fact your eyes will fail." There's just that's what happens to your eyes. They start to fail and they progressively fail. You know, it's things like that. I also think there's something about um, really sustaining um, your engagement as a writer, actually, with, with unwelcome change, with sticking with it, you know, and, and broaching it and being honest about how awful that makes you feel and pulling away in, in kind of anxiety and then broaching it again, that there's something about that process, actually, that is, um, is really rewarding. It's, it's um, because it's in the struggle, that you learn things. It's by wrestling things down. It's by it's at working at the coalface of your struggles, finding the point of resistance. That's where you make the breakthroughs. And um, I think it's a very interesting metaphor for writing as well, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to confront the very worst that you can kind of, the, the blocks, the difficulties, the obstacles, and only then can you move beyond. So for me, the book was also contained a metaphor for, for creativity, really. Um, Indeed, yeah, very much so. 
So I'm going to ask you a few questions about your life as a writer. Um, that I've general questions that I've asked everybody. Don't think too much about okay. it. It's sort of like more of a game. But uh, first question: What natural gift would you most like to possess as a writer? I'm not a writer who is as observationally aware as I would like to be. You know, I often read interviews with other writers where, you know, they're saying that they've got this fantastic memory for overhearing conversations or they, you know, they've got this ear for dialogue or they can observe things. And I, I, I think I'm, I'm, that's a gift I don't have. And I'd, I'd love to have that observational gift for really noticing things. Yeah. I'm, I'm, my default position is, is mulling. I'm good at mulling. <laughs> that is a talent also. Mulling is good. <laughs> When and where are you most happiest as a writer? I am most happiest in my study, in my house, overlooking the trees. Um, it's a sunny room and I, sun, the sun coming in kind of fills me with kind of optimism. So, uh, yeah, I need to feel optimistic and sunny. And what faults do you feel you're, you most indulge as a writer? Oh, that's a very hard question to answer. Faults I most indulge. Goodness. Um, we can come back to that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Thank you. Right. Sorry, I can't think. What do you consider your greatest achievement as a writer? I'm very happy with this book, actually. I'm, I'm, you hope that with each book that you do that you're going to grow as a writer and you're going to learn as a writer. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that it doesn't have its flaws or that I couldn't write it better or when I got the proofs I didn't wish I could rewrite every line. But... I enjoy layering in the structure of this book. It had a, a kind of internal coherence that I was, I could see even before it was complete. So as I was writing it, it felt like putting the pieces in place of a structure that was already revealing itself to me. So actually the book is, the book is very tight with form. Yes, um, it it's yeah. a palindrome. The shape is a palindrome. Yeah, it yeah. begins and ends in the same place and the chapters that move inwards from beginning and end mirror each other. Yeah. Um, it also has a kind of, there's an arc that goes from beginning to end that goes from body to mind and um, kind of matter to spirit as well. Um, so all those things were coming together in a way that I've not really felt before in previous books. And who are your first readers? Um, I have a couple of first readers, actually. I have a friend of mine who is another nonfiction writer, although she's now become a crime writer. Uh, I have a f another friend who's... Um, We've always read each other's work. So there's a trust that's built up over time. Um, and my husband. And with this book and, and the structure that you mentioned, which is, is very um, powerful, was that structure the result of input that you got or did you build that sort of on your own as you went? I built it. Yeah. And there were mo significant moments. So, so I started actually writing it in the middle um, and then I went back and started writing the beginning. And there was a moment where I'd got a couple of chapters in. Of course where, you started in the middle. It's middle pause. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> sorry. That's right. <laughs> I started in the middle and then I went back to the beginning. And then there was about two chapters in. I had a kind of a moment where I realized that, that there was a moment of unlocking the key where the structure just fell into place. Um, and that was really the moment when I, could, I realized that moving forward, I could just build in this structure Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it was very exciting. I really enjoyed that, and I hadn't had that with previous books. 
So tell us a little bit about sort of the work that you've done and how this relates or, or is distinct from your earlier works. Um, I, so this is my fourth book, but it's my third memoir. So memoir is a genre that I've been very drawn to, but I've drawn to, been drawn to it as a nonfiction writer moving towards memoir. So the way my route was step by step, and I've always written blended narratives. So narratives that blend memoir with kind of biography and literature and history and travelogue and so on. Um, so the first time I took uh, the memoir aspect out for a walk and put it into a book was writing a book about, um, it was an elegy really for the, for the end of the space age and why hadn't the future unfolded as the space age had promised because I was a big space nut as a kid. And it became really became a memoir about growing up in the 70s and, um, and all those hopes that we had in the 70s mm. that came to nothing. And I wanted to trace kind of where those cultural ambitions had gone once the space age had let it down, had let us down in that way. Um, the next book after that was more conventional memoir. It was a family memoir. But um, because I was writing about my grandmother, who was Iraqi, and um, it wasn't a literary culture, she wasn't, I didn't come from a literary family, she didn't even have a birth certificate, I found very quickly, and she'd also died, so I found very quickly I was running out of first-hand material. And so I felt I compelled to novelize it. So, um, but that was a memoir where I novelized her life, but it was also interwoven with my own mm-hmm. first trip to Baghdad in 2004, hunting for the last Jews of Baghdad. So there was a kind of quest narrative that I brought to it where I was visible on the page and then interwoven with um, a novelization of my grandmother's life. Right. And then the middle pause is the memoir that followed that, where I was very interested in exploring this idea of an unstable narrator in the middle pause. And and I did that by looking at somebody who'd been thrown by surgery, and in this case it was a hysterectomy, addled by drugs, (laughs) by the painkillers and the hormone therapy and all the stuff that followed it, and, and somebody, and thrown as well by the process of aging. So I wanted to start with an unstable narrator so that, um, that I could really approach this subject from from a kind of point of being sidelined and ambushed and off kilter, yeah. Um, and that 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 distortion is as a literary device works well because I think distortion wants to write; it longs to write itself. So there's a there's a quest in that a narrative arc there in terms of you know you know being debilitated by by something and then finding your route back to wellness. Yeah. I like that. I like that idea of the the unstable narrator in this context versus you know the the fictional context exactly. that we normally think of. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I I think your your situation drove you to unstableness, right? It, that was a that was a crazy yeah. situation. And actually, I've had so many women say to me that that's been their experience of menopause too. That you really? know, forget hot sweats and that sort yeah. of you know what all the things that we commonly associate I've had women say I went insane yeah you know or I forgot language which is something I touch on in the book you know it was particularly nouns for some reason that went and you do you think oh my god I've got Alzheimer's you of course you do so, because you <laughs> half of us are caring for parents that have Alzheimer's already so you think of course it's now coming for me and I will hmm. that's the road that I am quite definitely on yeah yeah and you, 
And actually, you know, in doing that and going and admitting the the difficulties gave me the enor- an enormous respect for the elderly that I'd never experienced before. You know, when you're really saying, I'm coming that much closer to mortality and I felt a kinship with older people that I'd never understood and a real admiration for their how they, you know, continue to find joy in life. And in one of the upswings, I think, about middle age is that study after study has shown, and, and cross-culturally too, so not just modern Western societies, but all cultures, where you see a kind of um, correlation between age and happiness where there's this trough in midlife. People are at their most unhappy between the ages of about yeah. 45 and 53. And then it turns. Yeah, so it's, it's like, like a reverse bell yeah. jar. Yeah, 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 you start soaring upwards again and older people are happier yeah so um yeah you do yeah. you do give us encouragement uh, um you know you say there are there are a number of ways but a couple that i wrote down was you know that you you know you really have diminished the care that you have and what people think of you i mean that is yeah. that's a positive <laughs> yeah and i and i to, when i talked about that uh Insight. I use the the writer Colette, who is really my heroine in this book, because I mean she really has this fantastic novel that I explore in great length called Break of Day, where she's got a fictional self. It's broadly autobiographical, but she won't let you get away with thinking it's her, who retires to this lovely French seaside town and is just content to be alone because yeah. she's not alone. She's in solitude. It's it's not the same thing. Um, you know, and it's a celebration of the sovereign self, really, um, you know, who's content in solitude. And um, and one of the lessons of the book as well is that in giving up the race of life, the clutter, the race of life, we travel lighter. And it's also, well, it's the pilgrim's lesson too. You know, you leave something behind yeah, yeah, yeah. and you move freely. Um, putting down emotional baggage and traveling lighter. Um so yes, and I think that when you get to that point, you can say with honesty and with real integrity, I don't want the things I used to want anymore, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. So um, that's very liberating. It is. And it allows you to say, okay, so what do I well, want? Well, that's the next part though, right? That's where you're like, okay, now what do I want? And, it, and the, the opportunity seems, en, you know, as great as any time in your life. It doesn't feel like a lack of opportunity. Yeah. It's kind of quite the opposite. And it's a book that we can write ourselves, all all of us as we age, because there is, there's no blueprint for the second half of our lives, or at least the one that there was was very banal, which was kind of, you know, you go yeah. off and start knitting, yeah. become a grandmother, tend to your garden while your husband plays golf, go on cruises, and then wait to die. You know, and I, <laughs> I just thought, well, hey, here's I'm a blank, doing, a blank book that. here. <laughs> no, you know, the canvas is there for us to rewrite, and um, and I think, but I think, you know, to go back to where we started with this, in a way, you can only you're only in a position to do that with authenticity. Yeah. If you've really confronted the kind of um, the complexities of the midlife crisis, yep. and gone beyond the cliches. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for the middle pause, which helps us go beyond the cliches. Congratulations. Thank you and so much. thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. All of the books you've heard mentioned here are available at your independent bookstore. And if you like what you've heard, please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents.